Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, August 29th. Uh, it's the morning on the West Coast of the United States from San Francisco, where we always broadcast this show. Uh, last Monday in uh, in August until we get to September, real political season as we run up to the 2022 elections. I spent the weekend in part listening to the various Sunday shows, State of the Union, which I tend to like with Dana Bash on CNN, uh, had a number of features about the role of... Um, the Dobbs decision on abortion on Roe versus Wade, post Roe versus Wade, uh, and Meet the Press uh, did the same thing. It's the gold standard for better or worse of Sunday shows. Meet the Press talked about the plummeting of Supreme Court ratings after the abortion decision. Lots of talk that the Democrats are doing a little better these days and more optimism about the November elections because of the unpopularity of the Dobbs decision. Uh, of course, it's enormously important, the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization decision from uh, June of this year. One person who's given a great deal of thought to this is my guest today, uh, Dahlia Lithwick. Um, she's the host of Slate's excellent uh, Amicus podcast. She's an authority on the law, and she's also the author of a new book, Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. I'm thrilled that Dahlia is joining us from Toronto, um, just outside the United States. Dahlia, welcome. What's your take on the current mood in the country? Has America turned? Uh, it's a great question, and thank you, first of all, for having me. It's a treat to be with you. I think two things are happening simultaneously, and you have to think about them in conjunction. One is it's clear that some part of America has turned. We're seeing an uptick in uh, Joe Biden's popularity. We're seeing massive amounts, as you mentioned up top, of women registering to vote, uh, getting engaged in politics. We're seeing a real, I think, response to the Supreme Court's decision, not just in Dobbs, uh, the gun case, uh, 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 the abortion case, but also in uh, Bruin, the gun case, in an EPA case and other matters. The court, I think, has really, really, in some sense, energized and radicalized Democrats, particularly. I think there's another piece of this uh, that America is turning in a dangerous way, and that is just what we're hearing out of Mar-a-Lago, what we're hearing from Donald Trump, you know, attacks on the FBI, attacks now on the National Archives, if you can believe it, uh, Lindsey Graham signaling that uh, any attempt to indict Donald Trump would cause rioting on the streets. So in some sense, I think you're seeing two parallel movements. One is a return to stability and sanity, an appreciation for what the Biden administration is doing in terms of the economy, in terms of debt forgiveness, what have you. I think at the same time, you're seeing a small faction of a quite radicalized 
Trumpist wing that is more and more enamored of the idea that violence is going to be the way to solve this. And so in a deep way, I think the short answer to your question is whether this gets fought out in November uh, at the polling places or as just seems sometimes eerily possible uh, on the streets, I think is the question now facing everyone. Let's talk about the new book, Dahlia. It's out next month, Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. Particularly intrigued by your subtitle, the second part of the subtitle, The Battle to Save America. Um, those kind of subtitles usually come from the right in American politics. You're coming from the left. What is it about America that needs or has to be saved? Is America, in your mind, in danger? through some of these Supreme Court decisions? I think in some sense, language of battle is a paradox because this is ultimately a book about law and women lawyers. And so right there, I think you've identified a little bit of the tension uh, because this is a book about battles that are fought out largely in courtrooms, sometimes by organizers, sometimes on incredibly arcane questions of gerrymandering and voter registration. And so battle in some sense is both a strong word um, and also I think an appropriate word because each of those areas of incredibly mechanical systems of law are in fact and have been uh, under attack. And so this is a book that begins with uh, the Donald Trump order, uh, the first weeks of his presidency that would have enacted what was in effect a Muslim ban that was a battle to beat that back in the courts, one that prevailed, uh, and then segues on to Trump attempts uh, to um, make sure that Teenage migrants at the border couldn't get abortion services to which they were entitled. A battle in the courts ensued by a bunch of attorneys uh, trying to get uh, those rights effectuated. And then it ends on voting rights, which have been, I think, under assault in a quite military fashion, whether it's gerrymandering, whether it's vote suppression, whether it's election denialism, what we're seeing right now claims that the 2020 election was stolen. So the attempts to reinstate the norms and values of one person, one vote, the norms and values of the Voting Rights Act that has been uh, whittled away by the Supreme Court, I do feel comfortable using the language of battle, even though the weapons of choice here are blue books and yellow pads and depositions and victories in courts, uh, because those wins in the courts whether it's in the voting context, whether it's in the vote suppression context, whether it's in the context of women's freedom and liberty. I think each of those battles in the four years of the Trump administration and now in the years after are truly existential on matters of whether democracy can live or die. Uh, Dali, we had a fellow Canadian writer, don't need me to tell you who she is, Margaret Atwood on the show last year, talking about her one of her great books, perhaps a masterpiece, The Handmaid's Tale, which warns of a, I don't know, a, a fundamentalist birther state, uh, a state that creates the cult of procreation. Uh, Atwood's book, of course, was a dystopian novel. It was a warning. One wonders how literal she was, although Hillary Clinton seems to think she was quite literal. And, you know, when you talk to Atwood, uh, she she talks about seeing this from the Canadian border. Um, 
how dystopian do you think we uh, we need to think in terms of the world that the Supreme Court, the American Supreme Court, or at least five justices on the Supreme Court, or maybe four, and their supporters are trying to, uh, shall we say, birth? I think that it's no longer a question of how we frame it or the language we affix to it. I think that in at least half the states, and we saw a bunch of these near total bans go into effect, the trigger bans that went into effect last Friday. So I think that in, you know, we're looking at a slow roll toward about half of the states are going to make it all but impossible for women to terminate their pregnancy. Explain that because not all our audience, uh, Dahlia, will be familiar with the, the term trigger ban. What does that mean? The trigger laws were laws that were put into effect in the years after Roe v. Wade was passed in states that essentially said, if and when Roe is overturned, we are going to revert to uh, you know a, a no abortion policy. And so we have seen, although, again, I'm using the word battles, this has been battled out in Texas, it's being battled out in Tennessee in the courts, but we have seen a regime of laws put into place just in the few weeks since Dobbs was enacted that make it nearly impossible for women to terminate pregnancies. Some of them long before, say at six weeks, uh, a woman knows she's pregnant. Some of them are now saying uh, life begins at conception. And some of them, interestingly, have no exceptions for rape or incest or the life of the mother. And so we are seeing extreme, extreme bans, and that will continue, I think, in the states that seek to end uh, abortion. And the reason I say we're no longer thinking about this in terms of dystopian science fiction is that if you're a woman on the ground in Texas and Mississippi and Tennessee and Alabama, not just abortion, but things like emergency treatment for ectopic pregnancies, women who are told they have to wait until sepsis uh, sets in before they can have emergency interventions, pharmacists refusing to give women methotrexate, which is a cancer drug, but has the side effect of sometimes um, uh, inducing a miscarriage. All of these scenarios are now coming to pass. None of this is untrue. We had a story at the beginning of the summer that was horrifying about a 10-year-old rape victim who had to leave Ohio for Indiana. To turn yeah, I mean, I, I'm not even sure if the word horrifying is appropriate. There, there has to be other words to describe that. It's more sort of unbelievable, surreal, bizarre. Or, or dystopian, maybe. I mean, it is truly Brilliant. an astounding... Atwoodian, perhaps, yeah. is, a, is a new word that we should use because, you know, there's this other story today which was talked about over the weekend, a Louisiana woman uh, who, who's been denied an abortion for a fetus that everybody knows doesn't have a skull, so it will die dead. Uh, sorry, that it will be born dead, says that she'll seek the procedure out of state. We're going to see more and more of these kinds of stories. One of the talking points on the, on the weekend shows was that some people suggested that a lot of people on the right, maybe not the hard right, but shall we say the soft, moderate right, they didn't really understand what this was all about. And they didn't understand the implications of, you know, 10-year-olds being raped and having to get abortions out of state or abortions for fetuses without skulls. Do you think there's some truth to this, that as the, the practical consequences of this law begin to filter, drip down, people will come to their senses? 
it, it's interesting. I think the nomenclature that's been pushed around since the beginning of the summer has been what happens when the dog catches the car, right? That you've had an entire pro-life forced pregnancy movement. Yeah, you put that in a very in a in a nice piece in Slate about maybe we should think about the case as God catching the car and God forbid the car that gets caught by God. Not good, right? For the car, at least. I mean, I think that in some deep, deep sense, this was a movement, as you say, that was principally pushing a theological talking point, which is increasingly life begins at conception, that personhood confers the full panoply of constitutional rights on a fetus, on a fertilized egg. And what do you do when you have to live with that outcome and where you have the kinds of cases you and I are talking about, just heartbreaking, heartbreaking stories of uh, people who are not getting, as I said, emergency care for non-viable pregnancies. And the more that happens, the more you're gonna see what we're seeing, which is either denialism, right? Oh, that Ohio teenager doesn't exist, that never happened, the doctor in Indiana should be disciplined. And when it manifests that that in fact is happening and did happen, then you get this pushback that more or less says, and we've seen this all over the map this week, it's fine for 10 and 14 year olds to carry a pregnancy to term because that is essential bonding, that that is really an, an important growth experience uh, for both the mother and the child. And more and more language of kind of what we heard Amy Coney Barrett saying at the oral argument in the Dobbs case, that none of the hardship, including medical and economic hardship on women forced to carry term to term really matters because either you can drop the baby in a drop box, which is one of the interventions that's now happening, or give it up for adoption, no you harm. You can probably no have it sent on FedEx, right? I, I mean, it's 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 so dispiriting that the same states, and maybe this is the takeaway, that have the worst income, worst outcomes in the country for maternal health, for birth rates, for uh, economic support of single mothers. Those are the same states that given the opportunity now in the wake of Dobbs to say, okay, we'll invest in a social safety net. We'll make sure that young mothers, poor mothers, people who do not have the ability to take care of a baby will have all of the programmatic support. And yet none of those states have made those moves. It's increasingly punitive. And so I think maybe, you know, your question, are we going to see more and more of this? We are going to see more and more of this. And these stories, as you say, are transcendently chilling. And you're seeing the uh, outcome in the votes. We're seeing it in the Kansas ballot initiative, a ruby red state that absolutely unequivocally renounced uh, an attempt to criminalize abortion, but we're seeing it in voter registration around the country. There was a special district election in New York where the candidate that centered abortion rights prevailed, surprising everyone. And I think in a very, very strange way, and maybe this is one of the themes of the book, is that when women involve themselves, not just with a single issue of abortion or gun control, but the machinery of democracy itself, making sure that vote suppression can't happen, making sure that gerrymandering is cured, making sure that election denialism isn't rewarded, then women can change the world. But it's going to take that kind of structural democracy work. And that's really hard work. But I have been so heartened by the polling in the last few weeks that suggests that women are undertaking to do just that. 
Well, maybe that's the narrative, the broader narrative, just as the women in Kansas, are, at least uh, according to uh, Dahlia Wick, uh, Lithwick, they are battling to save America. So in your book, you talk about women like Sally Yates and Roberta Kaplan, who are in the business of saving America. Um, tell me a little bit about Yates and Kaplan and some of the other women who you feature in your book. I will confess that one of the animating purposes of the book, which was largely written in COVID, was a real distress that women felt lost after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. There was a sense that who is going to be the iconic woman lawyer who's fighting for justice? I have to jump in here, though, uh, Dahlia. You're a big fan of, of uh, Ginsburg, but can't we blame her for a lot of this? I mean, she should have quit earlier. Clearly, she was a great woman. We had Linda Greenhouse on the show last year, New York Times correspondent. She had a book, Justice on the Brink, which I think is in some ways a prelude to what you write about. But Ginsburg doesn't come out of this whole narrative completely unscathed either, does she? I think she doesn't, although I do think the temptation to blame her for her death uh, feels a little bit... Well, I'm not blaming... No one's blaming her for her death, but um, certainly there is an argument to make that she should have quit earlier and then none of this would have happened. In a sense, and I can't speak for Justice Ginsburg, although I've interviewed her and talked to her about this, I think that she genuinely felt, and maybe this goes to both Linda's book and mine, that it is not up to members of the Supreme Court to determine the future of democracy, it's up to the voting public. And I think she genuinely believed, and a lot of people genuinely believe, that in 2016, when uh, poll, uh, when Americans went to vote, and there was not just a vacancy on the Supreme Court, but three octogenarians, Democrats did not prioritize the courts, and Republicans by a two to one margin did. Some of them hated Donald Trump, by the way, but still understood that he would reshape the court for decades, which he's done. And I'm not saying that to exculpate Justice Ginsburg, who you know should have left when Barack Obama, I think, politely suggested she do so. But I think she would have said, if this matters to you, get out and pull the lever, not just for Hillary Clinton, but for Senate Democrats because Merrick Garland at that point had been blocked for months from even having a hearing. And perhaps the larger point is, I think we do all this hagiography at our peril. I think the idea that Justice Ginsburg was gonna save us or Michelle Obama was gonna save us, or even some of the women in our book, uh, the temptation to say Sally Yates was gonna save us, the temptation to say Stacey Abrams is gonna save us, one of the themes that runs throughout this book is each of these women lawyers, while heroic and iconic, is the first to turn around and say, you know what? Save yourselves. You got to vote. You got to register voters. You got to make sure that in your jurisdiction, uh, one person, one vote means what it means. And so I think I would at least give Justice Ginsburg the benefit of the doubt insofar as she really, truly believed that if Americans cared, about the composition of the court. We had a three alarm fire in the fall of 2016 and Democrats didn't prioritize the court. The fault lies with her, yes, for not seeing what was coming, but also for us, with us for not seeing what was absolutely unequivocally coming our way. Well, that's a fair point. Enough of, of Ginsburg, she's no longer around to defend herself. Uh, perhaps you might um, talk about one or two of the lady justices in your book for whom, uh, who, who really have helped the uh, of America? 
There's so many. And I think that the book in some sense is an arc from Sally Yates, who famously was the acting attorney general under Donald Trump uh, when he signed the Muslim ban or the what was functionally the Muslim ban. She was the person who took a look at it and said, this feels as though it di discriminates on the basis of religion. And I cannot put my name on it. I cannot put the weight of the United States Justice Department behind it. You may recall she was then replaced by Jeff Sessions and William Barr, each of whom was willing to rubber stamp some of the most heinous uh, uh, Donald Trump, Im Trump imperatives. And so I start with her because I think she really did look like a hero and feel like a hero. But in some sense, the book ends with voting rights activists like Stacey Abrams, like Nina Perales, people who every single day were doing the work to get out the vote. Because I think in the end, as I said, they're the ones who say this has nothing to do with me as a mini Ruth Bader Ginsburg or as somebody that you buy coffee mugs and tote bags and feel like you've participated. This has to do with empowering people to ensure that they protect the machinery of democracy and whether that takes the form of working on uh, bipartisan gerrymandering reform or doing away with the Electoral College or bolstering the Electoral Count Act. All of that stuff sounds so boring, but so many of the women in this book under the surface, away from the headlines, we're doing that absolutely essential, and I would say existential work of making sure that when folks go to the polls in November, their vote still counts. And that in the shadow of what we're seeing from Donald Trump and some of his supporters who really want to message that elections don't matter, the only thing that matters is violence and force and power, I think it's not an accident that women are very, very keen to understand that violence and power never redounds well to the benefit of women. And I think that's why some of the most important whistleblowers, even after January 6th, have been women, because in a world where it's only violence and power and nihilism and mayhem, women end up suffering. And I think that the women in this book and so many of the women who are sort of metaphors for, for what the women in this book did have been fighting for law and order, sanity, democracy, due process, justice, dignity, in ways that I think are going to absolutely echo on for decades forward, long after we're out of this particular crisis. I think that they will really, really have bolstered democracy to their credit. Yeah, and certainly, you know, even the, the Lynn Cheneys of the world, um, Perhaps it's no coincidence, as you're suggesting, that they are female figures within Trump's own party stood up to him. I don't know what her position is on abortion. We've had a number of those women actually on the show. Fiona Hill, for example, uh, Maria uh, Yovanovitch, the former Ukrainian ambassador. Um, your book's out in September, uh, Dahlia. Um, the review uh, in Publisher Weekly loved the book, but they suggest that Ironically enough, given that it's a book about women in the law, that your focus, and I'm quoting the, the reviewer, uh, your focus on individual attorneys and activists inadvertently, and I'm not sure where, how that word's used, echoes the great man theory of social change. She thinks Americans are too apt to succumb to. Do you think you fell into the great woman theory, uh, Dahlia, in the book? 
I think they're echoing um, some language from the great, great uh, political philosopher and thinker, Rebecca Solnit, who wrote a gorgeous, gorgeous piece right at the beginning of the Trump administration about how we are all apt to fall into the great man or great woman theory of one person alone, whether it's Robert Mueller or whether it's J Jamie Raskin or whether, as you say, it's Liz Cheney is going to save all of yeah, us. Yeah, or Merrick Garland now, who's very much right. going I mean, on in terms of the raid on Mar-a-Lago that you write about. We love our cowboys, whether they're men or women. And I think one of the tensions throughout the book is how do you both celebrate that there's no one cowboy that can save us and also lift up these extraordinary people doing this extraordinary book uh, work. And so I think what I decided to do was live right on that seam of hagiography, of reverence for great leaders, but also land the book very precisely, I think, where Stacey Abrams landed it in Georgia in 2020 after the election, which is this has nothing to do with any one great man or one great woman. What it has to do with is empowering everyone to own a piece of democracy. And so what I like to think, just in answer to the provocative question, is that by lifting up these people who are heroes, who I hope will send women and men running to law school to do the work of democracy in a lawful way rather than through violence on the streets, I'm hoping that I can hold up some heroes. Not that these people are going to single-handedly fix it. None of these people single-handedly fixed anything. But I think we can model our lives after the work that they do, that long after things looked hopeless or frustrating or maddening or unwinnable, they got up. They went into court, they won time and time again against huge odds. They're still doing that today. And I think as role models, we can do no better right now. Is there a broader conversation here, Dahlia? It's not just a legal one, a conversation, a debate, a contradiction about sex. America is a very odd country on lots of levels. You and I are both outsiders. We probably think that more than most, but it's bizarre attitude towards sex on the one hand a pioneer of pornography and openness various liberal divorce laws on the other hand uh the home of some of the most reactionary puritanical uh anti-sex legislation and thinking it's no coincidence of course this is current fight is over sex your um the implications at least of sex in, in the abortion issue you also write about sex and sexual harassment in your book. It's a personal story. Uh, perhaps you might say something about, something about your own personal narrative laces, uh, Lady Justice. It's such a good question. I had been um, one of many, many women who wrote uh, in 2017 um, about an experience of um, inappropriate sexual behavior. In this case, it was an Article Three judge, Alex Kaczynski, former chief judge of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Who's pretty well known. Who is a phenomenal jurist and thinker, and by the way, one of the great legal writers, I think, of our time, but who had, uh, there were multiple reports of inappropriate behavior toward not just his law clerks, but other jurists' law clerks. Um, and when he failed to step down, I wrote about inappropriate 
uh, contact I had witnessed. And what I wrote at the time was that I had sat on that information for decades, the way so many other women in this context had sat on information because it was at the peril of my career, because it was the peril of advancement and being invited to fancy dinners. And so I tried to be very, very honest, both in that piece and then revisiting it again years later for the book about the ways in which our complicity, all of us who are bystanders, who convince ourselves that someone else should take the hit and you know, me too will solve these problems, uh, that the bystanders are as complicit as those who um, in some ways perpetuate uh, the abuse and the imbalance and the harassment. And I wanted it to be a meditation on how all of us have an obligation to come forward. I guess this is starting to be a theme, but that, that no one hero, not Christine Blasey Ford or Anita Hill can be tasked with doing this work. We all have to do this work. And maybe the last thing I would say, just with respect to your framing of the question about uniquely American perspective, perspectives on sex, is that let's not forget in recent weeks, the Republican Party overwhelmingly voted against protecting not just uh, you know, abortion rights, but contraception rights they refuse to protect legislatively. And so this does go to this core issue, not just of, you know, as you started, forced birth and Margaret Atwood, but sex itself, contraception, birth control. And one of the things that I explore from the beginning to the, of the book to the end is this theme of lock her up, lock her up, which we heard directed by Donald Trump at Hillary Clinton at the beginning of uh, the 2016 campaign, but which by the end of 2020, we were hearing directed toward Christine Blasey Ford and toward, toward Nancy Pelosi and toward uh, Muslim uh, uh, Congresswomen. And lock her up is a really poignant callback, right? To the witch burnings, to the Salem witch trials, to the idea that women with power or with voices can be not just unprotected by the law, that's chilling enough, but that law can be weaponized against them. That's what lock her up means. And so I think maybe you are landing where I landed in the book, which is that we're in a moment right now, not just where abortion is illegal, but where women are going to present with a miscarriage and be criminally investigated for child endangerment. We've already seen in the past year in Oklahoma and in Texas, women who have miscarriages who are then charged as though they have committed crimes. And so I think this salient idea of lock her up being weaponized against women, particularly around their sexuality and their fertility, in some sense, it goes back to the founding. It certainly was, um, ascendant in the years of chattel slavery. And I think that the idea that women, again, are uniquely sensitive to the possibility that the law not just is going to fail to protect them, but may be used as a sword against them. And that's the moment we're at in terms of, as I said, nearly half the states. I think that's a thing that is very, very keenly heard by women in ways that, not that men don't hear it, but maybe it's not in their DNA and their muscle memory. And I think it goes to this question of how this isn't just about controlling sex. This is about criminalizing the kinds of women who have sex. And that really is a callback both to the founding and the darkest times in American history. Yeah, and I mean, the point of Atwood's um, uh, Handmaid's Tale is not the outlawing of the sex, it's the outlawing of eroticism. Uh, and I think this sort of squares the circle, your argument, given the way in which African-American women, slave women were 
presented in 17th, 18th, 19th century as sexually out of control. Um, the business of this side seems to be, as you're suggesting, in not so much banning sex, but banning eroticism, banning the enjoyment of sex. So when you think of somebody like Alito, uh, you, you wrote an interesting piece uh, from late July. You went to Rome and mocked foreign leaders. Um, uh, he's a Christian, a Roman Catholic, Christian fundamentalist. Um, is it just these men, you know, I, I don't want to be crude, but maybe they just have very small penises. And then... <laughs> Good job. You don't want to be crude. Um, no, I, I don't know that it's about their... I mean, maybe Alito. I mean, what's his problem? Why can't he just let people enjoy sex? There's an amazing piece by Margaret Talbot in The New Yorker today that folks should read because she does a really deep dive on why it is that Alito is so deliberately uh, cruel and really careless in the Dobbs opinion. I mean, he had a chance that no one else in history had, which was that that opinion, because it was leaked and fact-checked and historians and economists and organizers and doctors fact-checked it. He could have changed it. He changed virtually nothing. Uh, he changed virtually nothing, I think, because he, A, just doesn't care what women think. And that's the most dispiriting part of the Dobbs story. But I think he doesn't care because he really genuinely believes that people are going to accede to this worldview of forced birth. You know, there's language in this opinion about the scarcity and the national market for a viable adoption as though really we live in Margaret Atwood's uh, head right now. There's so much language in the opinion that is just recklessly careless about women's health outcomes, women's economic equality. And so I don't know what it is exactly that allows him to say, given the chance to soften the language in Dobbs, given the opportunity to at least imagine that women counted, he doubles down and the final opinion is as cruel as the draft. And what that tells me isn't so much about his psychology, although I think Margaret Talbot goes into that. I think what it tells me is he thinks that he is untouchable. He thinks that they're the, the I'm fact not going to make any jokes, Dahlia, about Alito being untouchable. <laughs> but you, uh, <laughs> you, you certainly nail a lot of this stuff in Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. I'm thrilled that you're around, that you're bringing all this stuff to the attention of everyone. Congratulations on the book. It will be out next month. Um, what else should people be reading? What are you reading? I'm sure you get a lot of books across your desk as the slate legal correspondent and as the host of Amicus. Uh, I'm loving Ellie Mistal's Allow Me to Retort. Uh, it is a book about some of the same issues that I explore, constitutionalism, the Supreme Court, the rule of law, in this case through the lens of a black constitutional lawyer and talking about both what history leaves out and what the court is blind to. I'm a huge fan, as I've already said, of Rebecca Solnit. And so mm. her classic- Lit Hub, uh, regular, she used to have a column on Lit Hub. She's amazing. And her book, Hope in the uh, Darkness, is one of, I think, the sort of singular lodestars that keeps me focused on doing the work. And the last person I'm reading and that folks should read is Dorothy Roberts, uh, who uh, writes about the criminalization of black bodies, particularly during the era of chattel slavery. And she's one of the people, uh, along with a whole bunch of African-American women scholars, 
who really reminds us at this moment that just because white women are experiencing uh, an inability to access reproductive care, black women have experienced that throughout history and also that a cornerstone of freedom for black women and white women has to be bodily autonomy for reasons that go back to chattel slavery. So yeah, I'm Linda Villarosa uh, was on the show last week and, and she made that very point. 